Welcome to the Dhamma Podcast at Pariyati.org. The audio recording that follows was from a talk given by Paul Fleischmann at the University College London on May 12, 2011. The talk was entitled, An Introduction to Vipassana, Ancient Wisdom in the Modern Universal Culture. More information about Pariyati and the resources it offers will follow this talk. So welcome to this um, talk on Vipassana meditation to be given by Paul Fleischmann. My name is Piers Messam. I'm introducing the talk on behalf of the Vipassana Trust, which is the charity here in the UK that organizes courses in Vipassana as taught by S.N. Goenka. Uh, Paul uh, studied as a medical doctor and then studied psychiatry at Yale. He then went into private practice and he's lived with his wife Susan in Amherst, Massachusetts um, and practiced there for the last 30 years, practiced psychiatry there. Susan and he um, took their first Vipassana courses under the guidance of S.N. Goenka in the 1970s. Um, and since then, Paul's been appointed a teacher of Vipassana, and he's been given a responsibility to explain Vipassana to audiences in the West. And Paul's written extensively on Vipassana um, and given talks on the subject all around the world. So um, the subject of tonight's talk is uh, Vipassana meditation, ancient wisdom in the modern universal culture. Paul. So I was wondering who would show up because I don't like the title of the talk. <laughs> I, I would be very skeptical about coming to a talk that is about wisdom. What is wisdom? Who can claim to have wisdom and how do you define it? It seems like a kind of an archaic and pretentious word. So I wanted to pause a minute before we start talking about Vipassana meditation and talk about the idea of wisdom. Is there any such thing as wisdom or is that just some cultural artifact or historical artifact of a more naive era? I grew up in the state of Massachusetts in the United States where we had a famous writer, Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau said in his famous book, Walden, he said to be a philosopher does not mean to have subtle thoughts. It does not mean to found a school. To be a philosopher is to so love wisdom as to live by its dictates, a life of simplicity, magnanimity, independence, and trust. A philosopher, according to Thoreau, is someone who solves the practical problems of living. Another great statement about wisdom that can help it feel meaningful in the modern world actually comes from ancient Rome. Seneca said, all the great founders of the ancient creeds have paved for us a way of life. I, meaning Seneca, have surrendered myself to great men. And if you study the words 
of the great founders of the past, you have not wasted your time. And he specifically addresses himself to war-torn Rome. And he said, the soldier is not the only man who stands at the battle line. He meant that great ideas protect a society more than warfare, something we're currently reconsidering. Thoreau, who read Seneca, said, one moment of serene and confident rest takes more courage than a whole campaign of daring. So to be restful and to be peaceful is an act of wisdom and courage because you're leaving yourself undefended. The person on a campaign of daring surely is using their courage. But the person on a campaign of serene and confident rest requires more courage, says Thoreau. Freud was asked, what is wisdom? He said, to love and to work. And that very famous quote does not mean, to love does not necessarily mean romantic love. It means people who love an idea or love a principle or love a person or persons. And to work does not necessarily mean a job. For most of us it does. It means to contribute to the common good. But Seneca, the Roman philosopher, also said, he said, many more people would achieve wisdom if they didn't have the idea standing in the way that they had already achieved it. And uh, that echoes a comment by Richard Feynman, the uh, physicist from California who won the Nobel Prize and who was a very witty writer as well as a great physicist. He said, if you, he was a, a quantum physicist, got the Nobel Prize for quantum electrodynamics, so that is explaining the positive and, and minus charges that rule the world of electromagnetism. He explained them at the quantum level. And he said, if you really study quantum physics, if you really feel you deeply understand it, then you don't. Seneca said the wise person lives as if his life were on loan and the person he owed the debt to had the right to collect it at any moment. In this collection of profound ancestors, there's the Buddha. The Buddha said... Wisdom is to know two things. This causes suffering. And this ends suffering. He also said, wisdom consists of understanding that everything we see, think, feel, touch, contact, or know in our minds is impermanent. 
the Buddha also said, wisdom consists of finding a balance, a middle path between craving, the desire for something we don't have, and aversion, disliking something we do have. So for the Buddha, most of the time people's minds are not accepting reality as it is. They crave something that they don't have. They are against something that they do have. And when that craving and aversion goes away and a person can stand in the middle in balance, the Buddha would call that wisdom. Another definition that the Buddha gave to wisdom is understanding cause and effect. That's very interesting because the Buddha is often stereotyped as being passive. He's just sitting still with his legs crossed under a tree. He doesn't do anything. But actually, Buddha was very concerned with action. And he said, wisdom is understanding cause and effect. I remember as a psychiatrist, one of the key features of working with alcoholics and addicts, those are people who don't clearly see cause and effect. They don't want the effect they get. They don't want to become impoverished or diseased or lose their capacity to function. But they don't clearly see cause and effect, so they produce an effect without being aware they're the cause. And the treatment largely consists of making people more aware of cause that leads to the effect. And Buddha said, all of wisdom for all people, whether they're addicts or or alcoholics or not, is making the connection between what you do and what you're going to end up getting. And if what you want is a life of peace, you need to understand the causes of peace. So there's a chain of thinking in the Buddha's aphorisms. This is suffering. This is the way out of suffering. The way out of suffering is finding equanimity that is not filled with craving or filled with aversion. It's the middle between those two. And to get to those spots, you have to understand what causes freedom from craving and aversion. You need to understand cause and effect in your own life, not cause and effect in the philosophical or scientific sense, but in the behavioral sense. The Buddha famously said wisdom consists of three things. Do what helps others. Don't do what harms others. And purify yourself. Purify means become a more positive person and a less negative person. That's a very beautiful and famous aphorism, but the problem with it is it's very complicated to know what helps. Sometimes in life, You have to take hard actions against people in order to help them. Sometimes uh, what appears to be helpful can actually be harmful. So it's a beautiful piece of wisdom, but it requires the previous thinking, cause and effect. What will the, the real, my motives alone are important, but my actions, my ability to connect cause and effect are more important. And lastly, in these different thoughts about what wisdom is, 
even though wisdom is hard to define, probably has many different cultural contexts and meanings, probably has changed in its meaning over the years. The final definition of cause of uh, wisdom is when the Buddha said the wisdom, wisdom is to actually practice Vipassana meditation, to practice it. So let's go to our second part. The first part is what is wisdom? And it's a little hard to define, but we get a pretty clear sense of it. Wisdom is not so much fancy ideas as practical ideas, not so much uh, thinking something that sounds fancy as living well. And Vipassana is a tool for seeing realistically and living well. So let's define Vipassana meditation a little more clearly. Vipassana meditation means to sit still, close your eyes, try to turn your attention inward, and try to be aware of the sensations in your body, all the sensations in your body, and to observe them neutrally without commenting on them, without having a sensorial tone of voice in your own mind about the sensations of your body, without reacting to the sensations of your body. So it's inward, interior, self-observation on a naturally occurring ordinary object called sensations. Now, what do I mean by sensations? Well, like this room feels down here, it's a little cold, so that's a sensation. Or you're sitting on a chair, so you feel the chair against your bottom, that's a sensation. Or you feel the chair against your back, that's a sensation. Or you can feel your shoes against your feet. Sensation means just the ordinary things that your body experiences when you allow yourself to be conscious of what your body is experiencing. However, Vipassana means, as I just said, systematic, continuous, thorough observation without editing of sensations. So if you observe something systematically, continuously, and without editing out anything, Generally, that makes you much, much more aware of what you're actually observing. An example, if you go into the woods, we've been here in England about three weeks, we've taken walks in some very beautiful woods in western England near Wales, Hereford. If you walk in the woods, it's very beautiful, you see beautiful trees, you hear birds singing. But that's not the same thing as being a systematic observer of the woods. If you go into the woods with a naturalist, suddenly you see animals you wouldn't have seen on your own. You hear bird song and know what it means, which bird is producing it. So systematic, thorough, and continuous study of something generally deepens our ability to appreciate and experience that something. Another example, I had a dear friend who was a great pianist. He would play a piece of music, 
I would listen to it. And then he would discuss what was going on in the music. And I had heard about 25%. And he was hearing three times as much as I was hearing in the music because he was a trained, thorough, systematic student of music. So in Vipassana, we say the practice is to observe sensations, and sensations includes the ordinary sensations, like feeling a little cold or feeling your seat against the chair. It does include those things because we edit nothing out. But if you observe systematically, thoroughly, and continuously, an entirely new world of sensations opens up to you, like going into the woods with a naturalist who's experienced, like listening to music with a concert pianist who's well-trained in music. As you practice Vipassana over time, there's a whole realm of sensations in your body that you've never been previously aware of, and you come to recognize that your entire body is continuously filled with many, many varieties, many intensities, many types of sensations simultaneously, continuously, all the time. In fact, even when you're asleep, although typically we're not aware of that. Now that sounds fairly easy. I think it also sounds fairly boring. So we're going to have to figure out why it's worth doing. Let's go to the easy part. If you try to meditate, if you, if you take a 10-day Vipassana meditation course, and in our tradition all the courses are taught only in 10 days, if you sit down and try to meditate, the very first thing that happens, you'll meditate for somewhere between 1 and 10 seconds, and then you'll just start daydreaming. And the reason is our minds are trained to look out into the world. We are mammals who are trained to do things to survive. Even though we live in a very comfortable environment today and our, our survival does not feel threatened, everybody is rushing around trying to increase the number of protections they have. If you have a house, you want a bigger house, you need a car. You need a computer. You need a bigger computer and a smaller computer. You need a cell phone that gets has more apps. We're constantly dealing, coping, strategizing, planning. We are very successful monkeys. We know how to make the world work for us. So when you sit down and close your eyes to meditate, this strategizing monkey, who you have been, for your whole life, just starts strategizing. And he or she, the monkey in your mind, starts thinking of all the things that you want to do, should do, are planning to do, that will help you, that will feel good, that will enhance your life. And you will also start thinking about all the things that you don't want to happen, that you better head off, that you better prevent, that you desperately don't want to happen. And so that goes back to the comments I was making earlier. Craving. I want this. I have to plan to get this. 
it'll be good if I get this, I'll enjoy this if I get this, craving. And aversion, oh my God, that better not happen, I better do this to prevent it, I better not do this or this will happen. The Buddha did say that wisdom is knowing the connection between your actions and the quality of life you get. So after all, strategizing and planning is a good thing to do. But meditating is something different. And when you start to meditate, you're stuck with your strategizing and planning mind. That's why we teach meditation in 10 days. It takes a while. And in fact, we start teaching Vipassana with a simplified form of Vipassana in which instead of trying to feel sensations throughout your entire body, you try to feel sensations just in the area of your nose as you breathe in and out. So Vipassana is taught starting in a simple way, and then the practice is expanded with very careful teaching over a period of 10 days to help you get the hang of it, to help you overcome the previous tendencies of the mind to daydream, and to get you to observe your body systematically and thoroughly. There's another part of the practice that helps reduce the strategizing, planning, worrying, natural product of the way we live, and to reorient the mind towards meditation itself. And that is taking ethical precepts, ethical attitudes. Before we start meditating, we take a decision, we take vows, Vows is a very old-fashioned word, so I say we take a decision not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to use intoxicants, which includes tobacco, and not to commit sexual misconduct, which for the 10 days of a course, that means everybody comes alone, you come as an individual person, so there's no sexual behavior at all. The rest of your life, of course, you do as you please. In the 10-day course, you've prepared yourself with these ethical vows. You start with this simplified form of Vipassana, and you're building up the capacity to be aware, awakeful, self-observing, and particularly to focus on sensations. What is the point of focusing on sensations anyway? The mind is in the body. Of course, to some extent, wisdom requires us to have a good mind. We've described wisdom as being something practical, simple. Thoreau said wisdom is to so love wisdom as to live by its dictates, and the first dictate of wisdom is simplicity. But, of course, one does need to be able to think and plan and strategize. One does need to connect cause and effect. But to develop your mind simply by thinking and planning is ordinary life. We do that all the time. We study, we read, we discuss. So meditation is development of the mind through the awareness of its embodied nature. The mind occurs in the body. 
People today somehow think it's a new discovery that uh, the body and mind are integrated. There's all these new uh, health treatments, body, mind, integration, treat the body with the mind, treat the mind with the body. But a long time ago it was discovered that if you cut off somebody's head, they stop thinking. So your mind is in your body, and there are aspects of your mind that you can only access by becoming aware of the sensations of the body that the mind is receiving. So actually, when you're observing sensations of the body, you're not just observing the body. The observing property is the mind. So as you're observing the mind, you're observing the body. As you're observing the body, it is the mind that is doing the observing. So the two cannot be separated. And as you're developing the observation of sensation, you're developing your mind. And particularly, you're developing these qualities of your mind. So these are the qualities of the meditator. You're an ethical person who's taken these ethical vows. You're sitting there peacefully, self-contented. You're making an attempt to be awake and alert, not to daydream. It's true, you will daydream, but you're making an effort to not daydream. And you're making an effort to have a neutral, non-judgmental, non-editorial, non-sensorial mind, a balanced mind, a calm mind, a peaceful mind. So actually, it's like riding a bicycle. It's like learning to play tennis. It's a mental, physical exercise in learning to be balanced, calm, peaceful, awake, and observing. It is not an exercise in being cut off from the world. There's uh, a, an attitude that's very strong in the part of the United States where I live that, uh, as everybody knows, the human chromosomes come in pairs. There's two of every chromosome, except for the sex chromosomes where we have an X and an X and a female. So females have a pair of sex chromosomes, but a male has an X and a Y chromosome. So males lack a pair of chromosomes. And this accounts for the intrinsic inferiority of the male. <laughs> I'm sure this is a very widespread theory in London, as it is in my part of the United States. So there's a story about a man. His wife was talking to him, and suddenly she said, I can see you're not listening to me. And being a modern man, well-trained, he, he said, you're right. I apologize. I was not listening to you. This is a stereotypic male narcissistic trait. I apologize for indulging in this in your company. And I, I want to come out of this bad male habit. And so, uh, I, would you mind, I will pay attention, would you mind repeating everything you've said for the past 38 years? <laughs> So far, we've been quoting the Buddha, and we've been quoting a practice that the Buddha taught called Vipassana meditation, which I've just described to you in a rather simple form. To practice, it takes a long time to learn. It's simply described, but 
rather challenging to learn. But we are not discussing Buddhism. I want to make this point quite clear. So, for example, I myself am interested in chemistry, biochemistry. Chemistry was founded, really, modern chemistry was founded in Manchester by John Dalton. And uh, I take a great interest in that, but I don't call myself a Daltonist. I follow what he taught, but I'm not a slave or a, a uh, devotee of John Dalton. And uh, the, the basis of all chemistry is the chemical bond that makes atoms connect to each other. There are different kinds of chemical bonds, and they're all, mostly, most chemical bonds are built on electromagnetism, which was mathematized and fully understood by James Clerk Maxwell, another great British scientist. So uh, these great, all these great discoveries happened here. And I'm very interested in electromagnetism, but I don't call myself a Maxwellist. So there is a misperception that happened in many people's minds, both in the past and in the current time, that if you're following the teaching of the Buddha, you're a Buddhist, that's not true. Any more than if you're following, if you're a chemistry student, you're not a Daltonist. So that's an important feature because people who don't want to be Buddhists or who aren't Buddhists who are, who are something else already, they're Christians or any other thing, they, they're free to practice Vipassana without worrying about becoming Buddhists. Because Vipassana is such a natural, simple, obvious, and impersonal teaching, it really doesn't belong to anybody. It doesn't belong to the Buddhists. The Buddha actually claimed he didn't invent it. He claimed he got it from somebody else. And so the Vipassana meditation is always taught for free. It's free in the way that breathing is for free. Trees give us oxygen, and trees don't charge us. I gave a talk like this in Boston a number of years ago, and I was aware, maybe everybody's aware of this, but it struck me for the first time in a big city like Boston, and probably it's true here in London, that you can't drink tap water anymore. It's so horrible, filled with chlorine. So most people buy water. So water always used to be for free. Now water is not for free. Maybe pretty soon, someday, breathing won't be for free. And if you want decent fresh air, you'll have to put coin in a meter. They'll put a mask on your nose. You'll get fresh air. But up till now, breathing has been for free, and Vipassana meditation is also for free. Now, our topic tonight was uh, the what is modern, what is universal? Maybe a better word would be what is relevant about Vipassana to us today. It's an ancient teaching. It dates 2,500 years ago, was invented. It's been practiced for thousands of years. But why is it so relevant to the modern world, and why is it spreading around the world, which in fact it is? I'm going to answer that in, with a dialectical process, two parts. One part says, 
Vipassana is relevant because it's very inward looking. And another part of what I'm going to say is Vipassana is very relevant because it's outward looking. So we're going to look at a process. It's very inward. It teaches you to be an inward person. It's very outward. It actually teaches you to be an extroverted person. Let's look at the inward part first. I think doing something like taking a 10-day meditation course in silence with moral attitudes, attempting to be wakeful and alert in the present moment, just observing the simple natural phenomena of yourself and deepening your integration with yourself and attempting to be calm and peaceful no matter what arises within you, having that neutral tone of voice in your mind. I think that's a perfect antidote to the modern world that's constantly assaulting us with stimulation. If there's anything striking about the 21st century, it's the amount of stimulation that we are expected to absorb every day. That really is a brand new phenomenon. And if, if it's a joke to refer to us as adapted monkeys, and, and of course that's not technically evolutionarily correct, but if, we're, if we are in any way related to other living beings, the greatest break in our connection to the rest of the animal kingdom is this 21st century in which we're expected to be constantly uh, triggered, constantly stimulated, constantly responding to a message. I don't think that's ever been a way any animal, including any human animal, has ever lived before. So going away for a 10-day meditation course has at least the very minimum value is to put you back in a state where you are trying to be alert. You're not trying to be escaping or sleepy, but you're not subjecting yourself to messaging, text messaging, emails, phones, conversations, trains, buses, cars, televisions, computer screens, etc., etc. There's a there was a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine, which is like Punch magazine. And there's a person with a, talking on a cell phone who suddenly gets very upset and says, I think I just took a photograph of my ear. <laughs> and another one, a young man is with his friend in a cafe, and he's getting a message from his girlfriend, and he goes, she's texting me, but I think she's subtexting me. Meditation can be seen, this is, again, this is a dialectic, so we're going to show another side, but can be seen as downtime, being unplugged, being in touch with yourself, giving yourself time to be self-aware. There's a word in English, authority. Authority. Uh, there was a cartoon... It shows uh, two senators talking. It could be two parliamentarians talking. 
and one of them says to the other, how do you know that you really have any power and authority unless you're getting away with abusing it? The word authority, if you go back to the spelling, A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y, A-U-T-H-O-R, author. Authority originally meant self-possession. We'd say in in older English, you had authority when you were self-possessed person. So an authority is a person who writes his own words. He's his own speaker. He or she, she speaks for herself. She writes her own lines. And unfortunately, the mass of people have lost the power to write our own lines, to live our own life, to feel in charge of our own existence. So we've lost our authority, and we say those people have authority because they're making the laws or they're writing the popular book or they're seen on television. So meditation, you could define Vipassana meditation as something that restores authority to the right location. Another part of the inwardness of Vipassana, you could say that Vipassana restores intentionality. I described, the Buddha describes wisdom as being aware of what the effect of your action will be or wanting an effect and being aware of how to get to that effect by knowing what causes will bring it into being. That's called intentional living living with a focus or an intention, being aware of what will happen to you as a result of the way you live. We haven't fully clarified how that happens in Vipassana, and I'll say a little more about that in a minute. But meditation is not a stuporous withdrawal, like the man who said, please uh, repeat what you said for 38 years. Instead, meditation is awareness, alertness, There's another saying that uh, when we're children, we do a lot of things to please our parents. When we become teenagers, we do a lot of things to displease our parents. And when we become adults, we do a lot of things, and we have no idea why. (laughs) So Vipassana is clarifying your mind clarifying who you are, making that connection between who you would like to be and how to get there. There was a famous book when I went to college. It seemed to be the most famous book of its time. It was called The Lonely Crowd by David Reisman. Is that book still in circulation? Anybody hear that book? No? It's disappeared. And uh, so that was supposed to be the definition of the modern world, say around 1960, 1965, the lonely crowd. You're in a crowd, but you're alone. You're lonely. You can't connect to others. And Vipassana is a way to connect deeply to yourself so you have what was then called authenticity. Self-awareness could be redefined as authenticity. 
in, in uh, David Reisman, this famous sociologist writing, it was called being inner directed. The direction of your life comes from within. You're not subject to the forces of mass man. You direct your own life. That's authority. I like to call it psychosomatic wisdom. We get our wisdom from our psyche, which is connected to our soma, and wisdom is that which rises up as we're meditating. Now let's go to the antithesis, which is, well, if meditation were just inwardness, just receiving inner wisdom, it would be subject to the criticism, to the error of making people self-absorbed and selfish. So there's a negative stereotype about meditation in which the meditator is like a statue of the Buddha sitting under a tree, not doing anything, not caring about anybody, not involved with life, and selfish. So let's consider the outward-going direction of Vipassana. When I first came upon the teaching of the Buddha, I was a college student reading books about Buddhism. As I said, Vipassana is not Buddhism, but I didn't know anything about Vipassana. It was not being taught in the Western world in the days when I was in college, so I was reading about Buddhism. I was intrigued by it, but basically I found it awful. All the, it sounded from the, the, the books I had, which were all translations by people who'd never practiced Buddhism. They were just linguists tr- making translations based on dictionary. And the text sounded like a bunch of these depressed men making a very bad fashion statement, shuffling around, not caring about anything, and feeling depressed because everything's impermanent. It was not very attractive, and I had no intention of ever following anything connected to the Buddha. So I was very surprised when I actually came upon the the real practices that the Buddha taught, which are not Buddhism, Vipassana meditation, doing something, not just believing in an ism, but living a life, having a practice. And I came upon the teaching of the Buddha that goes along with Vipassana, And there's a very famous teaching which repeats many times. And the teaching of the Buddha is uh, contained in many, many volumes. It's a very extensive teaching. But quite a few of the teachings repeat over and over. One that repeats over and over is the necessity for good moral practice. The person has to be morally based in order to receive the benefits of a calm mind. Obviously, if you're sitting still, and you're trying to meditate, and you're thinking, as soon as I get up, I'm just going to smash that mother in his face. <laughs> Obviously, you're not going to get anything out of meditating. So morality is one important feature of meditation. I was very shocked to find this repeating anecdote, which repeats multiple times in the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha had a close friend who was named Ananda. Ananda was his cousin, and a cousin, what they call in India, a cousin brother, that is, he'd grown up in the same house like a brother, even though he was a cousin. They were very close friends. And one day, Ananda, in this legend, says to the Buddha, I have been listening to you for 20 years. They were close friends, and Ananda was following Buddha around, listening to all his teaching. 
and I've concluded your teaching can be summarized in the following way. 50% of everything you say has to do with friendship. And the Buddha said, no, that's wrong. You've misunderstood me. Friendship is 100% of what I'm teaching. 100% of the path is friendship. That's somewhat confusing. We've just been talking about sitting still with your eyes closed, not talking, taking a vow of silence, not doing much, just sitting there observing things, inwardly turning. You've turned off your cell phone, you've turned off your computer, you're observing yourself. What does this have to do with friendship? Meditation is intrinsically social and communal. Intrinsically social and communal. Let's look at how. I learned Vipassana from a teacher named Mr. Goenka. Susan and I took our first course with him in 1974. He was teaching 10-day courses. At that time, he was teaching only in India. We had to go to India to take that course. In 1983, he came to North America, and he also came to Europe. And since that time, he started teaching throughout the world. Now he's still alive, very elderly, and can't go around the world and teach. And he's asked others to teach on his behalf. But the important point is you only can learn Vipassana from somebody else. It's a social activity. It's a gift. It's something you get. As you're sitting there meditating with closed eyes on the sensations of your body, you're following something that has been handed down to you by somebody else. So it's an intrinsically cultural activity. It is not it's not like digestion, which no one has to teach you. Even speech and grammar, to some extent, of course we learn speech and grammar, but to some extent the theory today is that grammar has a certain universal base, and regardless of what language you speak, there is an intrinsic human grammar. So we don't actually learn grammar. We select part of it to speak the language we speak. But Vipassana is transmitted person to person. Mr. Goenka transmitted it to approximately one million people. He's had about one million students. But where did he get it? He got it from a teacher in Burma named Uba Kin. Where did he get it? He got it from another teacher. Where did he get it? He got it from another teacher. So for 2,500 years, people have been receiving Vipassana, and the only way to learn it was to be a student of somebody else. It's an educational, so that, that's why it's like being a chemistry student. You have to learn chemistry from John Dalton. You have to learn electromagnetism from James Clark Maxwell, unless possibly you're as smart as they are and can figure it out for yourself, but quite rare. The Buddha may have figured out Vipassana for himself. It is said he discovered it, but when he discovered it, in the metaphors of the East, he said he learned it in past lives. So whether he discovered it, maybe he was the Nobel Prize winner of his day, or maybe he learned it from somebody else. But for all the rest of us, we get it. 
And once we have it, if we like it, if we find it valuable, if we enjoy doing it, if we feel it enhances our life, then we try to help transmitting it, that is, passing it on to someone else. So Vipassana is intrinsically a path. It's a receipt and a transmission, and it's always cultural and social. But the culture is a universal culture. The culture requires no language. Although the teaching of the Buddha was preserved in the Pali language, and there are scholars in the West who know Pali, and there are people in South Asian countries like Burma who know Pali, the Buddha explicitly said in the texts in Pali that you shouldn't learn Pali to learn the practice. You should learn the practice in your own language. So he set up a teaching that would be transmitted through any language change that happened over time. And when you learn Vipassana in English, you're learning just as authentic a transmission as if you were learning it in the ancient language of Pali. Right now, uh, the one million students that Mr. Goenka has taught have founded approximately 120 meditation centers around the world. All of those meditation centers were founded by a group of people. No individual can create a meditation center. It takes a whole group. All 120 groups are a cluster of friends. There's no organization. I started Vipassana under Mr. Goenka's teaching in 1974. I've never paid any dues. I've never gotten a membership card. I'm not a member. You can't be a member. It's not an organization. It's a path of friendship. So what you do, you do in friendship. If you help to create a meditation center, you do that in friendship. If you help to have a meditation center happen at the center, it still takes cooks, it still takes people to take care of the grounds. There's no membership. There's no dues. It's just a path of friendship. All the people at a meditation center, as I said, the teaching is free, but all the people are donating their time for free. Why? If people were paid, that would not be an act of friendship. So everything is done without any membership, without any dues, without any structure other than the structure of friendship. Although, to be daringly honest, as we have to be if we're meditators, well, when the centers get big and they're registering like 1,500 people a year, of course we have to pay somebody to sit at a computer and register 1,500 students. And when we're constructing a complicated building, we have to pay a concrete mixer to mix the concrete. You can't have a group of friends sitting around mixing concrete. So there are limits to everything. The spirit of the path is the spirit of friendship and a very vast majority of everything that went from when Mr. Goenka was teaching Vipassana to handfuls of students in India to when he was teaching, indirectly teaching through his, his appointed teachers, one million people in 120 centers, all happened without dues and membership, all happened through friendship. I uh, made up an expression 
uh, other, I said uh, Vipassana is not Buddhism, so it's not a religion, it's a path, it's a practice, it's a path of friendship. So the, there's a saying, things, some things like are called organized religion. So I call this a disorganized religion because we don't have much of an organization. Another important feature of Vipassana that separates it from inwardness. Inwardness is a very important part. When you practice it, you practice in an inward manner. But the dialectic, the balance, the other side of inwardness is outwardness. Another feature of outwardness is Vipassana increases your emotional life. One of the greatest points of confusion that we get as questions, and this is particularly true for young people who feel filled with life, they want to feel calm and peaceful, but they don't want to feel blotto. They don't want to feel zombified. They want to feel alive. All people do, young people especially. And so there's a fear. People are attracted to meditation. Well, I want to be calm and peaceful, definitely. I don't want to be unbalanced. I don't want to be filled with cravings that I can't satisfy. I don't want to be filled with fears all the time that I'm constantly warding off. But I don't want to be flat. And it seems like if you're in the middle, don't you get flat? Isn't Vipassana about becoming unemotional, reducing emotion? A specific answer to the, the Buddha gave to that, the word for what we call today flatness, person without emotion, in the Buddha's day that was called cessation, so there's nothing happening in a person's brain. And somebody said uh, to the Buddha, I hear that you teach cessation, meaning that you're just sitting still, nothing's happening, nothing's going on. If you're a husband, you're not listening to your wife for 38 years in a row. Aren't, isn't that what you're teaching, Mr. Buddha? He said, if you mean, if you're talking about negative, upsetting, hostile, angry, misdirected, antisocial emotions. You're right, I teach cessation. But if you're talking about social emotions that connect people to each other, like love, like compassion, like social service to other people, then I teach the opposite of sensation, cessation. So what, is, what are the emotions that are augmented in the teaching of Vipassana? The emotions, the first emotion is gratitude. You always start Vipassana with somebody giving it to you for free. You can't buy it. Another reason it's taught for free, I've given several reasons why. Another reason it's taught for free is if you could buy it, you wouldn't have gratitude. You'd say, well, I paid for it. So you start the path with gratitude the first minute your, your Vipassana course starts. You're getting somebody's just handing something to you for free. And a very important part of the teaching is the teaching of allowing yourself to feel within your body what all living things feel. There's a famous story in the teaching of the Buddha. He was walking down a street in India one day and there was a cobra and some little boys were throwing stones at this cobra. 
I have seen cobras, and although in theory I'm supposed to be free of aversion, I find them quite frightening. They're extremely fast. They can move much faster than a human being. I'm not talking about their strike. I'm talking about their ability to move across the ground, very high rate of speed. And they lift up their head, and their darting motions are are almost infinitesimally fast, and they have total control over you. If a cobra's after you, you cannot escape. So these boys were stoning a cobra to get it out of the village. And the Buddha said, why are you trying to hurt someone who's only just trying to live just like the rest of us? It doesn't mean you should allow yourself to be endangered, but it does mean that there's a commonality to all of life. And this compassion or commonality with all of life is just an idea when we say you should be compassionate for the people in other countries. I, I grew up, I was born in 1945, so I grew up right after the Second World War. And whenever my mother cooked something I couldn't stand, like broccoli, she would say, just think how lucky you are all the people in Europe and the United Kingdom don't have anything to eat. So I expected to come over here, there'd be no food. <laughs> I had a lot, of, a lot of false compassion for the people of Europe, but I felt they were lucky since they didn't have to eat any broccoli. <laughs> so that's not compassion. Compassion means when you're actually experiencing the quality of life in yourself, that arising and passing of things within the impermanent world. The Buddha said everything is impermanent, but we still exist. We're still here. Compassion is the recognition of our existence within the context of impermanence and the fact that we share that with every living thing. The emotions that accompany that realization are spontaneously affiliative. There's another very modern feature, modern and social feature, of the Buddha's teaching, which is the one that appeals to me very greatly. The Buddha described his teaching as a teaching beyond all views, beyond all views, and no viewpoint. He has no viewpoint. That can be a little disorienting. It sounds like he's saying something like, if somebody asks him, do you like the reforms to British healthcare system, he goes, I don't know. Or, uh, you know, do you like broccoli for supper? I don't know. I've got no viewpoints at all. But it, it doesn't mean that. What it means is an understanding of what today we might call cultural relativism or we might say the uh, paradigm shift that underlies all thinking Vipassana meditation is not based upon any view. It's not based upon any belief. It's a practice. It's an experience. It's something you do. I analogized it to, say, playing tennis or riding a bicycle. Riding a bicycle is not based upon liberal or conservative thinking. It's not based upon Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism. Riding a bicycle is an activity. Vipassana is an activity in which you balance your mind in connection to the body in a community of friendship in which you share a feeling of compassion with all living things. But there's no particular viewpoint about that. 
I find that exceptionally appealing in the modern world. The, about the only thing I could believe in was not believing in something. But that can also descend into cynicism, skepticism. There was a slogan when Susan and I were in Spain. We saw a slogan scrawled on the wall. It said, work, consume, die. That's not Vipassana. Vipassana is work, maybe consume a little less if possible, and receive and transmit love and compassion. There was a famous moment in 1947 when India was being partitioned and it was extremely violent. Somebody challenged Gandhi, they said, you go around and seeing all the violence and you claim that in your heart you are nonviolent. Are you really nonviolent when you see people burning each other in trains, burning up whole trains filled with men, women, and children? These things went on in both directions. Warfare between soldiers, but civilian warfare. Are you, are you nonviolent in your heart? Gandhi said, no, I'm not. All I can say is I'm sailing in that direction nonstop. He made no false claim, but he knew his direction. There is a psychiatrist in Israel named Arya Shalev. He studied victims of trauma. Some people who are traumatized are terribly hurt, maybe damaged for life. Other people seem to come through. He was looking, what's the difference between people who make it through a trauma and people who don't? And his conclusion, in a beautiful short phrase, he concluded something so complicated. He said, he observed that in people who survive trauma well, we could say resilient people, survivors, they establish every day as a series of small victories. The Buddha said that if you turn your mind towards love and compassion at an authentic level, not a sentimental belief, not a viewpoint, but an experience of your commonality with all beings. If you experience that even for the length of one's finger snap, then you are living the life of wisdom. So let's stop there and we can have our questions. Here's a good question. How can one benefit from what Vipassana offers without necessarily spending 10 days? So, you know, <laughs> I'm not a promotional speaker, so I can be totally honest. The answer to the question is, you can't. <laughs> of course, anybody can have, the values of Vipassana are universal, so anybody can have those values. To use the practice of meditation to move you along a path you need to learn how to practice it's it it challenges your ordinary processes of daily thinking and it opens up a new way of being and that new way of being takes some time to cultivate so it does take at least 10 days actually it takes a whole lifetime 10 days starts you out very good question here if vipassana is non-religious 
why is it necessary to suspend one's religious practices during the 10-day course? That's very good. I didn't mention, but this person must have taken a course and knows. At the beginning of a course, the request is set forward to you, and you're asked to sign to this, that if you do have any religion, just for the 10 days of the course, please don't practice that religion. Put it aside just for 10 days. We're not against the religion, but we ask you not to practice during the course. Here's the reason why. Supposing you would like to learn how to play what in America we call soccer, and I think you call football, and you show up and with, at the football field, and you've got a tennis racket in your hand, and the coach says, well, wouldn't you please put down your tennis racket? You go, no, I'm not going to do that. That's why you have to suspend your religious practices. It's not that the soccer coach is against tennis, not at all. In fact, playing two sports is a better life than playing one sport. But you can't have a tennis racket on the soccer field. You can't have another religious practice while you're learning Vipassana. When you go home, just like you can play tennis one day, football the next day, when you go home. So when you go home, Whatever religious practices you have, you can keep. But for 10 days, if you're here to learn Vipassana, let, leave your tennis racket and your religion at home. Are there any downsides to Vipassana practice? For example, could marshalling and filtering your thoughts squash spontaneous creative thought? Um, well, there, there seem to be two questions. Let me answer the second. I, if I'm reading the handwriting correct, uh, could marshalling and filtering your thoughts squash spontaneous creative thoughts? In Vipassana, you do not either marshal or filter your thoughts, just the opposite. In Vipassana, you do not marshal nor filter. The essence of Vipassana is to not filter. So Vipassana is intrinsically connected to creative activity, meaning it's the permission to let things happen and observe, just observe. Not to react, not to squash, not to act upon, just to observe, just to let them happen, but to observe them at the level of sensations. Are there any downsides to Vipassana practice? Well, it take, you have to go away for 10 days. That's not so easy. When you come home, you can do whatever you like, but our recommendation is you meditate twice a day. Most people feel they get a, a great benefit from that. Um, we have a son who's in graduate school, very, very, very hard, demanding stage of life. And when he started, uh, he tries to be loyal to his parents, so I said, I whispered to him, you know, you're going to be in graduate school. I don't know if you should meditate twice a day, even though that's the recommendation we're supposed to give. It's very time-consuming. You may not be able to do that. So he started meditating twice a day, and he's still doing it. So I asked him, why are you doing that? He said, I'm so much more efficient when I do that that I get the time back. Actually, I'm saving time. So that's the experiment. There could be downsides any person might find, but I don't find too many. Please elaborate on cause and effect. 
Of course, cause and effect is a, a field of uh, human inquiry that's uh, infinitely deep. We can't always know what causes what. Uh, in particle physics, people are trying to figure out what causes mass. So the new uh, Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, CERN's big project outside of Switzerland, is going to try to figure out what causes mass. I don't know. When the Buddha is talking about cause and effect, he means an intentional life, a life in which we're not like the alcoholic or the drug addict who does one thing and hopes for an effect that's inconsistent with the thing they're doing. What they hope for is to feel better, to feel good, to not suffer. People take the drug not to suffer, but they end up suffering more. So they've got cause and effect backward. They can't link up the cause to the effect. So intentional living is living with awareness of the sequence of the impact of how you think, feel, and conduct yourself upon the quality of life of yourself and those around you. And meditation awakens you more intricately to that sequence. As you're meditating, as I described, you're in you're attempting to be aware only of sensations and not to daydream. But everybody does daydream. And your daydreams initially have nothing to do with meditation. They're mere inability to meditate. But after you learn to meditate, your, medit- your daydreams do continue. There's less of them, but they do continue. But instead of being disconnected to meditation, they're actually caused by the sensations that you're experiencing on your body. And therefore, your daydreams become more meaningful, more meaningfully connected to what you're experiencing at the deep level of yourself. And this awareness of deep level of yourself and what it makes you think and feel gives you increased capacity to discern how you yourself are generating what you think and feel. So your capacity to regulate your quality of life internally and psychologically is expanded by the practice of meditation. That's cause and effect. Please talk about physical pain during meditation. (laughs) It's It's good we have some people who've meditated to keep the whole talk honest. (laughs) If you keep yourself still for an hour, it's uncomfortable. Now when you start a meditation course, you're not asked to do that. So most people start the course sitting cross-legged on the floor, but people who have orthopedic problems, people who have an illness, people who are aged, people who have some other problem that they mention, can just sit on a chair. The cross-legged posture is really a historical connection to the Buddha, and it's also ideal for keeping awake. chair is a little more sedating, but you can still meditate in a chair. But after a certain number of days, after you develop some skill and and actually can begin to meditate, you've learned something about halfway through the course, then three times a day you're asked to sit still for an hour 
only three times a day. And if you sit still for an hour in a chair or cross-legged, it hurts. However, if you lie on a bed, you're not supposed to do this during a course, but you can do the experiment. If you lie in a bed and say, I'm not going to move for an hour, it hurts. And of course, we all know, we've all seen photographs of people sleeping, and we all know from our own experience, when you sleep, you constantly change your position. You roll over this way, roll over that way. So keeping still is uncomfortable. The practice of keeping still for an hour gives you a deepened meditation experience. Obviously, if you move every tenth of one second like a hummingbird, you're not going to learn how to meditate. Hummingbirds don't meditate. <laughs> so you've got to learn to sit still. And an hour is a historically arbitrary uh, unit of time that's picked to deepen your stillness, to deepen your observation. And life always does, unfortunately, have pain. No one escapes from life without pain. So if you can't observe pain, you won't be able to meditate at some point in your life, even if you sit in a very comfortable chair and move every 10 minutes, at some point in your life, you're going to have pain, and then you're going to give up on meditation because you feel pain is incompatible with meditation. So it's important to learn to face a certain degree of pain so that when pain does come into your life, which it will, you then say, I know how to observe this and work with it in a calm and peaceful way. So that's the practice of sitting still for one hour, is a practice in preparing you to face only one feature of life, and it's only three times a day, and it's only for an hour. Otherwise, you're free to change your posture as you like. So you, you should face some pain in, when you meditate, because that's reality. It's as if you meditated and never faced hunger, for example. So let's say you were fed eight times a day at the meditation center. That would not be ideal you wouldn't learn to face hunger. So you have to face a little hunger, a little pain, a little sleepiness, meditate in the morning and in the evening. You face all kinds of things that you don't want to face because that strengthens you. And when you go home and you face all these things, you'll say, I know how to meditate in the presence of all these difficulties. On the other hand, most of the course should not consist of pain. Some people overdo it. They should not overdo it. You should also learn, should learn, to meditate in the presence of pleasure. Most people who meditate get states that are also exhilarating. That's a strong word, but most people who meditate get states of exhilaration. And they're no better than the pain. They're no worse than the pain. Like the pain, they're a part of life that comes and goes and that you can learn to work with, face calmly, enjoy while it's there, and allow it to pass. So pain is a feature of the course. It's a small feature of the course. It shouldn't be overemphasized. Wow. Do you have any ideas of how to deal with the feelings of sadness when someone dies? The Vipassana way to deal with the feelings of sadness when someone dies is to meditate and allow whatever you feel to be felt. But to do so, trying to observe the body sensations that are the basis of life. We exist because we're in a body, 
If we cut off our heads and don't have a body, we can't meditate, we can't think, we're not alive. We're alive because we have a body. So meditation is always based upon coming back to the reality of your body. But in that other question where someone said marshalling and quashing your thoughts, I said that's not meditation. So when someone dies and you feel sad, if you meditate, you may feel sad, you may not feel sad. The sadness may come and go. The sadness may be accompanied by other things, such as beautiful memories of the person who passed, gratitude that you knew the person who passed, good fortune that you had someone that you cared so much about that you now do feel sad that they passed, sense of loss. It will all come up as you meditate, and the person who has learned to meditate does not quash or marshal those feelings, does not say those feelings are bad, does not try to get rid of them, just lets them happen. They rise up in the body and the mind, and they do pass away. Definitely they pass away. Do you have courses for children? Will it help concentration in school? Where are they held? Yes, there are courses for children. Was this a... So, uh, uh, we have sometimes people who ask me a question where they know the answer, and they just want me to answer it. There are courses for children held in England. The way to find out about them is by contacting the meditation center uh, in Hereford, which there's the pamphlets, which you can all get, or the website. And um, we like to think it helps concentration in school. We, unlike, unlike the uh, mindfulness trend, we don't purport to be an organization based upon trying to sell something. Since Vipassana is taught for free, we're not organized around proving something and then selling it. We're just organized around a spirit of friendship. I tried this technique of meditation. It was great. I've continued it. Personally, I've continued it for 35 years, 38 years, whatever it is. And I like it, so I try to tell other people about it. And children are people, sometimes. So we just try to distribute it to them. Obviously, a child can't sit still for 10 days. That's silly. So we make children's courses that are shorter, much easier, with little fun thrown in. And it would, it would be reasonable to expect it helps their concentration. We don't try to prove it. One more question. We'll stop. How can you not crave peace and harmony? Why do I find aversion to meditation? I don't know why you find aversion. <laughs> you know, I found aversion to meditation too. I, I think there's a certain intelligent skepticism. So that's why I started this talk. I said, I didn't put it quite this brusquely, but I said, since I didn't know you, now we know each other a little bit. So at the beginning of the talk, I said, uh, what are you doing here to listen to a talk on wisdom? You know, what's more subject to flim-flam and shallow pretension than the concept of wisdom. And so a person should have some intelligent skepticism. We encourage people that they should take a course with an open mind, which includes a skeptical mind. Is this intelligent? Is this biased? Will this really be practically helpful for me? Are the people who do it decent people? Is the center really giving this course for free? So a, a, a dimension of skepticism, and you could call that some aversion, is the proper way to begin. 
but uh, if you're so averse to meditation, of course, you won't uh, meditate at all. Some people imagine that meditation will reduce their vitality. We've had two questions like that. Won't it reduce your creativity? And uh, the answer is no, it, won't, it will not reduce your creativity. It's not based upon suppression. It's, it's permissive rather than suppressive. And how can you not crave peace and harmony? I'd have to say, I guess I probably still have craving for peace and harmony. So maybe that's compatible with meditation. Maybe my craving for peace and harmony will eventually disappear and I'll just have peace and harmony instead of craving for it. <laughs> Let's stop for tonight. Thank you. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariyati, a nonprofit publisher who offers written, audio, and video content, and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariyati.org. That is www.pariyati.org. Org. For more information on Vipassana meditation, including a schedule of courses taught throughout the world, please go to www.dhamma.org. That is www.dhamma.org.